Hello and welcome to the Comedian's Paradise. This is a podcast where we speak to amazing, tantalising and scintillating people from across the globe that help comedians like you and me live our life on our own terms. Now today's guest is the fantastic Earl Oaken. He is a comedian who has been gigging, performing in folk clubs, New York, across across Asia. He is a man who's been doing comedy before the comedy store and before many of us are born. He has many stories to tell and he's an absolutely fascinating person. Please welcome Earl Oaken. Well, thank you very much. I'll give you a fiver in a minute. <laughs> what about the tenor, Earl? <laughs> Oh, well, yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, I forgot. I forget <laughs> about inflation. <laughs> so, how have you been keeping on this lovely Thursday uh, morning? Birthday? Whose birthday? No, Thursday morning. How are you oh, keeping Thursday. this? Thursday. Look- okay. Well, I don't know. I haven't really looked out the window. I'm sure it's fine. Um, yes, I'm hoping to be awake soon. It'll, it'll, I think it'll, it'll come in a few seconds. Now, <laughs> what, 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 um, how did you tell us a bit about your story and about how you became a comedian? Now, well, of course, I've never really believed that I ever was a comedian. I just do some comedy on the side. But it started when I was a tiny little boy because my late father, during World War Two. One, one forgets that one's father was once young. He would have been in his 20s then, and he was in the RAF, and his job was to teach people how to mend mosquitoes and other aeroplanes. But he seemed to have spent most of his time running a variety show. And he would write material, sketches, God knows what. And out of his show came two uh, comedians, TV comedians of the 60s, one who was called Dick Emery, and the other one was called Harry Worth. And so, you know, I had comedy round the kitchen table when I was, you know, three, and it would be pun competitions, and, and you know, he would say silly things. And so it was always like that. So I suppose some of it rubbed off. Okay. It's, it's, and was it, was it, was it ponderful, Earl? Was it what? Was it ponderful? Yes, it was. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, somebody mentioned a tree, and then they would, we would, uh, somebody would say, "Oh, I didn't twig what you were saying," and then you know, it would, it would, it would be a competition as to who would think of the most puns based around a tree, and um, some of them were awful, you know. But that, you know, that's part of the fun. Sometimes the worse the pun, the better it is in a funny sort of way. <laughs> Um, so what, um, how, how was sort of comedy back then as opposed to is now? Like, well, the big thing when I was growing up in the fifties and you know what, I haven't heard anything to better it or even equal it, but we all knew it. It was, you know, I was, you know, I was a child, so I was, you know, how old was I, 5, 10, 15 years old, that sort of period of my life. And I had contemporaries whose parents didn't really approve of this show because they knew that somehow it was thumbing its nose at authority and they didn't 
really approve of it. My father loved it, of course. And, of course, I'm speaking about The Goon Show. Um, it always was the gold standard, and I think it still is. You listen to it now, and amazingly, 60 years on, it hasn't dated. It's still funny, and all the things that were said then are still hilarious now. So that, that was the gold standard of comedy. And yes, we had some other programs uh, on which were very good, too, in their own way, in the 50s and 60s. There was a program starring Kenneth Orne called um, Beyond Our Ken, which then got some different writers and became Round the Horn. Uh, and that was wonderful. I can still remember some of the jokes. There was a, there was one which was a sketch based on the very first James Bond film. And, uh, and there were some really silly jokes in there. I remember one where he said, um, oh, my God, what a hideous creature. No nose and hair all over his face. And then Kenneth Williams said, I'm standing with my back to you. I mean, it, really silly jokes like that, which I used to love. Just daft, just daft things like that. And that was, to me, what comedy was about. The more silly things were, the more I liked it. Okay. And so, so you'd say you're, you're more of a fan of comedy that's more slapstick and just daft? Well, slapstick, I mean, my, my big hero, um, I was absolutely potty about this. <clears throat> uh, the greatest, most famous film star there's ever been is still my favourite film star. And he's the most famous person there's ever been, probably, apart from Shakespeare, maybe. British and a film star. Who am I talking about? Charles Spencer Chaplin. And I was absolutely, massively a fan of Chaplin, still am. Hmm. So that's a different form of comedy entirely, which, of course, you don't see anymore because there's no words involved. What? What is it that you like more about that kind of comedy than perhaps now where you get people like Dave Chappelle and all the other people, Bill Burr, who are very wordy in their comedy? Well, it's not the fact that it's wordy. I mean, it's because, I mean, we had... It so happens that the person who organised a famous comedy series of the 70s, which is called The Comedians, with people coming on and telling jokes, as in, you know, the Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman came into a pub sort of jokes. The person who actually organised that show, who's now in his 90s, is a family friend. And I used to watch that, but it just didn't do it for me because it was sort of somebody telling jokes. It could be your friend in the pub. The only difference between your friend in the pub and these people was is they'd learnt a lot of them. And they'd learn to deliver them with perhaps better timing, but it's it was hmm. what the so-called alternative comedy came from, and nobody mentions this. I, in the 70s, spent most of my time, remember I'm primarily a musician, a singer, songwriter, and if you didn't have a rock band, the place for you was what was called a folk club, although quite often the people performing weren't singing folk music at all, but their own songs or old musical songs or jazz songs or any old thing, 
if it's like what it should have been called, Acoustic Music Club. Well, there were several people there who started doing what we now call, I suppose, alternative comedy or modern comedy. And, of course, the most famous of these is probably the best comedian of them all because I knew him as a banjo player. And his name is Billy Pumley. And that, to me, is the beginning of what we have now. And I think in that time and the 80s was the best time for this music, uh, for this sort of comedy. And I, with some exceptions, obviously, I think the standards have generally gone down. There are a few comedians, I think, are wonderful now. Uh, but a lot of them, I just think, they're copies of one another and I can't tell one from the other and there's no individuality which I think is again an important thing mm. when you saw years ago somebody like Tommy Cooper who had the ability to just stand there and be funny I don't know what exactly he was doing he didn't even open his mouth yet and you were laughing <laughs> the thing was there was nobody else like Tommy Cooper there was Tommy Cooper and that was it now a lot of these stand-ups I see now I can't tell one from the other um, there, as I say, there are exceptions, and I've, there are a few I've, I'm really fan, uh, a fan of. Uh, and I'm, uh, as you probably know, I'm going to be 75 years old at the end of January, and I'm having a, a sort of Erlokin and Friends evening. And I've invited a couple of my favourites to be in the show, and hopefully if they're not touring or doing other gigs, they'll come along and do five minutes. Hmm. But there are a few. A lot of them, you know, particularly the young up-and-coming ones, I, I look at them and I go, I've heard all this before, and it's not original and it's not different. Mm. It's, um, yeah, I, I do, yeah, it's, I, do you, one thing that I have noticed, I mean, I'm, I, 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 just a little thing that I've noticed is that I get a feeling sometimes, as it's so word-orientated now, that if you gave the jokes to someone else, someone else could say Yes, would... precisely, yeah. I mean, there are, look, I, I shall name you a few comedians who I think are wonderful because they're not like anybody else. Uh, let me see. There's Milton Jones, whose jokes are completely original and um, you don't know what's coming. And they're wonderful. There's somebody... Um, who was called Michael Redmond. Do you know Michael Redmond? Yes, Irish comic. He tells a lot of stories, doesn't he? Right. Well, I saw we. I first saw him at the Birded Jonglers before it went terrible. It was very exciting for about two years in the early 80s. It was so exciting, and then it was turned into a sort of McDonald's of comedy. But those first two years, and it was really a, much a variety show with comedy jugglers and all sorts of things. His first jokes, I still remember to this day. He came on in a, an old raincoat as if he were a flasher and didn't say hello and said, like most Irishmen, he said, I was, a, I was born a Catholic. By the way, this was delivered incredibly slowly with lots of dangerous pauses where... People could have heckled or done anything. Like most Irishmen, I was born a Catholic. He said, this came as a great surprise to my parents because they're both Jewish. And I thought, that's that's different. 
that's original, and you didn't know what was coming. I like the jokes where you can't guess the punchline. You have no idea where it's going. He was one of those. Milton Jones is another one. Um, then there are people who are <coughs> just make it look so easy as if you come on and have a chat with the audience and um, and then you go away again. And it it's so misleading because you think, oh, gosh, I could do that. But, of course, you can't. One of those is Ian Stone. He's one of those. Another one is Jeff Innocent. Yeah. And they just wander on stage, have a chat about their opinions or life, and then wander off again. And it it looks so damn easy. It's about as easy as juggling with with 10 tennis balls. It's not easy at all. So those are the people I like. And then I like um, um, people who are completely different to anybody else. So... um, one of my favourites, and people won't book him because he's dangerous, but he's wonderful, uh, Jerry Sadovich. Oh, my, yeah. I mean, I went to see his show in Edinburgh. It was incredible. Like, he, it's very unique, and there was, there was punch-ups on, whilst he was performing on stage. <laughs> really. I saw his one-man show at the Leicester Square Theatre about, well, just before lockdown, I suppose it must have been. And I went up to him afterwards, and I mean, he, first of all, he's also a world-class close-up magician, which people, I yeah. mean, he's, if you ask any magician about him, you say, oh, he's fantastic. He's one of the best in the world at magic, right? Forget, that's an extra thing. And so he did some of that, and his some of his political comments has got this wonderful vitriolic rage, you know? Mm. And... It's sort of, well, you know, and I think, who's the famous American comedian who died of drugs and was, they made a film about him with Dustin Hoffman? Oh, I know that there you know, was... Lenny, not Lenny, Lenny Bruce. Mm. Yeah? And I think the first time you see Jerry, the first time I saw him, which was at the Edinburgh Festival one afternoon, I didn't know who he was, I wasn't expecting anything... And it was like shock. And it must have had, had the same sort of effect as the first time people saw Lenny Bruce. My God, did he really say that sort of thing? And it was spellbinding, and he still is. And he's he's now rather a sad person because people won't book him because they're scared. And he's just wonderful. Um, so, you know, there are these people like that that I think are great. You mentioned in one of the other interviews, and this is a thing that, I mean, yeah, Jerry Sedowitz as well. Like, it's funny. One thing that I've noticed is that sometimes people that you think of arseholes on stage are actually pretty nice off it. But the ones that you oh, think that are nice a, are opposite I mean, of that. He's, he's sweet, quiet, modest. Uh, he's a lovely guy. Yeah, he is. It's, it's surprising. I went to a magic shop, and he, like, he was proper friendly. And it was just a small little magic shop in Clerkenwell. I had a chat with him, and he was nothing like his on-stage act. No, no. Um, I mean, I'm probably an angrier person off stage than he is. Because <laughs> I get really angry about politics. 
and uh, I can't be funny about it because I get I'm too angry. <laughs> uh, I mean, my my politics is somewhere to the left of Jeremy Corbyn, and when I've seen not only Boris Johnson but Starmer, and I just look at them and I go, ah. so um, I can't be funny about it because it's uh, too serious for me. So the one thing that I'd like to add to that, and what you mentioned there, you know, like this lack of originality now. And I think it's because, I mean, human beings, a lot of the times, a lot of us like to choose the easy option and the quickest route to things rather than the harder route because it takes a lot more effort, a lot more struggles to get there. So that's why I think a lot of people choose to do a set standard way in terms of doing their comedy. And does that... In regards to sort of like Keith Starmer and Boris Johnson, you mentioned before that you had an ch- interesting chat with Boris Johnson, didn't you, a while ago? <laughs> well, I was signed to Sony Jazz just before it went under. I now know in retrospect that he was told that it was going to close so you could sign up any old body, doesn't really matter. And instead of putting out my music, which is after all Sony Jazz, is a jazz label, they decided to do a live comedy CD with me, uh, which did not make me happy because I would much rather have done the music one. Um, and they had to do something called an EPK, an electronic press kit, which is basically a sort of visual short interview used to sort of publicize the CD. And this chap said, oh, I've got an up-and-coming political nephew. He could, because uh, I'd never heard of Boris Johnson at the time. And he turned up in, Ham- in Hampstead, in Hackney, um, on a bike, took us what looked like a large sock off his head. And the first thing he said was to complain about the class of people he'd had to cycle past coming through Hackney. So I already knew who he was and he was a sort of incredibly class-written right-wing politician so he did not endear himself before we even started and um, everything I thought about him then has been borne out by what I've seen ever since Do you feel sometimes that isn't there saying that a lot of the times when someone's talking about someone else or other people you learn more about that person who's talking rather than the people they're talking about. I had never thought of that, but you're probably right. Um, you know, somebody else spoke about Boris Johnson with love and admiration in their eyes. Then you learn, <laughs> then you learn a lot about them, don't you? <laughs> I love Boris Johnson. Oh, are you going to turn the phone call off now? <laughs> exactly, yes. <yeah. laughs> Um, I don't. I'm not even sure that half his party crazy about him. But there you are. <coughs> now there are people in the Tory party. I. I mean, I don't like Tories in general anyway. But there are some that I've got a vitriolic hatred for. Ian Duncan Smith. Um, who's a double-barrelled twit? Um, <laughs> that, <isn't> he? Hmm? <laughs> no, I just laughed. <laughs> Well, he is, and 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 then Pretty Patel. Oh dear! I mean, there's there's something evil about that woman. Just even the expression on her face, you just know, sort of 
inbuilt nastiness about her and lack of empathy for anybody. No, I don't even want to talk about them. So you see, I can't be funny about them. They're not hilarious to me. They're, they're a curse. There is one funny thing that I'd like to add to what you said there. As yeah. Through my conversations with you, it comes across a lot of the times that you couldn't give a fuck about a lot of things and you like to say things as you see them. But yes. what I mean, when you see people that you come across like that in entertainment, music or whatever, what is your general response? Do you walk out of the room or do you, do you just tell them to get lost? <laughs> oh, no, I just ignore them. I, I think I make a mental note. I don't want to be involved with them <laughs> ever again. I, I tell you somebody I met like that who I, I'd always had regard for in terms of you know ability as a performer, but when I met them, I no longer really want to watch them anymore. Oh, her name is Maureen Lippman. Okay. And uh, A, she's very pro-Israel, which I'm not. And B, she obviously thinks that she's, you know, a godlike figure and you're, it's going to be tough to talk to her. And that, I could see that whole attitude. Yes, who are you? Do I want to talk to you? No, not really. It's that sort of, you know. And I've worked with some very, very famous people. They're not like that. Um, so I... Uh, it's quite unnecessary, and I don't like it. So as soon as they behave like that, I walk in the opposite direction. But you've come across a lot of people from, like, because you've done comedy so long, you've come across a lot of people when they started off and to where they are now, some that are really yes. famous. And you said that, so from what you said there, a lot of famous people have got maybe being famous, not because they're talented as well, but also because they they get on with people. They're right to people. But... Well, a lot of it's also luck. I mean, uh, if I had, you know, met the right manager or the right agent, um, I would probably be in a much better place than I am now. And I know some comedians, some of the biggest names on TV, who I wouldn't go 10 yards to go and watch. <laughs> uh, uh, because to me they're not funny and so why would I want to go and watch them I mean I know one or two of them are getting 40, 50,000 pounds a gig now and I frankly wouldn't get out of my chair to go and see them so it's all it's partly down to you know the lucky break mm. um, so what can I say <clears throat> you, you said one of the things that I've noticed that you've sort of talked about on in a lot of podcasts and you've obviously mentioned it in this interview as well is that lack of originality and one thing I want to mention is the Edinburgh Fringe because you said that in the 80s it was brilliant you used to make a lot of money and in the 90s they started changing it and the big corporations sort of ruined it um, yes but I'll well, say it used to be the Fringe and yeah. the whole ethos of the fringe was it was for people who weren't on television, who weren't big names, and it was for them. That's what it was for. If you, if you were a big name, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just use Tommy Cooper as an example. If you were Tommy Cooper and you're a big TV name, you wouldn't do the fringe because why would you? You weren't on the fringe. You were in the middle. You know what I mean? And then. 
Uh, around about 1990, some of the big comedy London agencies, which I don't need to name, you'll know who they are, <laughs> yep. they invaded Edinburgh. They had the money to book all the best slots at the best times. They brought in their own comedians, <clears throat> and some of them, how can I put this? I know somebody who did a show for them in the early 90s. They sold out every night, but despite that fact, because of the money that they'd been spent on them, which wasn't made clear to them before they signed up, they then owed them, the agency, £3,000, and they had to work it off by doing virtually free gigs for them for the rest of the year. But not only did it screw their own comedians who'd signed to them, but it screwed everybody else because we had all we had left was less important venues, less important times, and the public, not knowing any better, thought, oh, these must be the best shows because they're at these venues at this time, so we'll go and see them. So our ticket sales went down as a result. Hmm. Um, so I, in the end, fought to get onto the Edinburgh Fringe board to tell them about this, but they didn't care. All they cared about was that the Fringe as a whole was making money. They didn't care one whit about the ethos of the Fringe, and so that was why I stopped doing it in the year 2000, and I've seen no reason to do it anymore. I did it for 18 years. I performed 500-plus shows up there. So, and I'm proud to say that I never lost money. Um, I always made something. Um, in fact, the last year, I think I made three grand profit because I learned all the tricks of the trade and what to do and what not to waste money on. But it was no longer enjoyable. So why do it? May I ask what they are? No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, no, uh, it's 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 a. Uh, and did did you ticket the shows? How do you mean? Did I ticket the show? Did you did you did you did the audience have to pay to watch your show? Of course. Okay. Oh yes, this is. There was no free fringe back then. It only started right towards the end. Uh, no, no, I did a proper show. Again, how much you charge for your tickets was quite crucial. If you charge too little, people will think, oh, well, they can't be any good. If you looked at what the top shows were charging, you knocked two or three quid off. Uh. That's where you had to be because then you were still a professional show. But, oh, we could save a bit of money by seeing him instead of them. Uh. So that's what I used to do. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's... That's a thing that I heard in another podcast of another comic. Like, if if he's performing in a theatre with a famous person, he would charge the same sort of price. So it's a, yeah, I see the point there. Um, and there's there's what you mentioned there with like the free model in Edinburgh, but that's also come across with a lot of comedy gigs in London. Like, there's so many, there's a lot, loads of free gigs now rather than paid gigs. I mean, ticketed shows. Well, yes. I mean, the last thing you want is to perform at a at a gig where there's, nobody's paid anything. The reason is this. If you haven't paid anything to get in, you've made no commitment, and people will wander in and out. They'll talk. 
so I'll leave the door open and the, you can hear the rest of the pub. If you're, you become a sort of background, it might as well be a tape or a CD playing in the background. Even if people have to pay a pound, once they've paid some money, they want to get something for their money. So they'll sit down and listen and say, what well, did I get my money's worth? Yeah. I, I, as soon as people say it's a freebie, I don't want to know. Mm. For that reason. I mean, I'm not talking about me being paid. I mean, I do charity shows, you know, where I'm not going to get paid. But people still have to pay to get in. But the money goes to charity. That's fine. But I don't want to do shows where people don't pay to get in because they're not going to pay attention. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned... You've mentioned a lot of interesting points there, and some of the things that have just jumped into my head with a lot of things you say is <clears throat> with, with comedy being entertainment and music being entertainment, there's like, would you say in some ways they're, they're, they're not as re- regulated as some industries? So those with power, uh, in some ways, get away with things that they wouldn't get, they shouldn't be able to get away with, are you saying? I mean, I don't quite know. I mean, you know, I'm not quite sure what you would regulate. I mean, there's a sort of... I mean, uh, I mean, for instance, equity. There's an equity minimum rate, um, but that's more that's more to do with acting. Um, I'm What I am really is something which doesn't exist anymore. I'm a variety act. I can't remember the last time I saw a variety show on television. It used to be the most popular form of entertainment on television. And then all of a sudden, it disappeared. Jonglers started as a variety show. And then it became just stand-up. <clears throat> now you've got TV shows like um, Live at the Apollo, where I've been told there's an actual rule that you have to do stand-up. You can't do musical comedy. You can't do slapstick, you can't do juggling comedy, you can't do any other comedy except stand-up. And it's sort of boring, because it's the same the whole time. Some are better than the others. But why not have a show where somebody comes in and is an acrobatic comedy act? Hmm. Um, I mean, the the nearest they've come to variety on that is somebody like Nina Conte, who is doing stand-up with a dummy. Uh, so it's, I think they allow that because it's still just talking. But anything else, mm. I don't want to know. And that's why, you know, I, I, I think the problem is not so much regulation as that the people who are in power and who can choose what is put on don't really understand what a variety show is, and they're they've only seen what's been going on over the last 10 years and 20 years. And the only thing in comedy allowed on TV are these three things, stand-up, sketches, sitcom. Mm. I can't think of any form of TV show or radio show over the last 30 years which isn't one of those three things. Yeah. Uh, It's... You mentioned a few good points there, but in in some ways, what a lot of comics do that are a bit different, they they focus a lot on the social media now, and they're, they're building a following 
through that way rather than on TV. So you got comics like Frizz Frizzer, who's a musical yeah, yeah. comic. He's got a massive TikTok following. You got um, lots of good sure. comics that are different, like oh, um, okay. setting up big podcasts. And what do you think will happen with? Some people are saying that if they're building a big social media following, that helps them a lot, and they it could see a change where TV producers will go to the comics who, who have ever established a big following and then put them on. Yeah, well, that's another thing. See that that, that modern decision makers do. They want you to do the hard work of making yourself famous. Because they don't have enough mouth to know whether somebody's got talent or not. Uh, this isn't strictly to do with comedy, but I happen to know somebody who put forward program ideas for the BBC. And she said the biggest problem she has is they like the idea, but they won't put it on unless there's a name who's going to present it. Hmm. Whether the name knows anything about the subject at hand is irrelevant to them. They want it to be somebody famous to present it. Uh, forgetting, of course, that, <coughs> say, the BBC, they make names. If you're on a BBC program for 10 weeks in, in, in a row, and assuming that you, you know, you're reasonably competent at what you do, you become a name. You're a name. You know, they don't need to have names. What they need to do is have people who are good at what they do, whether they're famous or not. And they become famous by doing it on the radio, on TV. That's another mistake. So to just go with somebody because they're good at selling themselves with, a, with social media, yeah, it, that proves that they're good at selling people with social media. So maybe they, their real talent is PR. What I want to see on the TV is people who are actually good at their job, which is making people laugh. What What do you think will happen as a result? If Because I've seen this happen as well. Comics that have been going for a year have grown like a massive following on TikTok and YouTube and they're starting yeah. tour shows. And, you know, they're not ready to do it yet. And if, I mean, from my side, I look at it and think if they are, Good, you've got a good following, but maybe you should have strong acts in between, like to open and close for you, and you'd be in well, the middle. First of all, I don't, I don't do TikTok, but I've seen things on. And in general, I mean, there are exceptions, but in general, when you're on social media, the clips are going to be fairly short. It might be a two or three minute piece, which might be hilarious, and people keep watching it, and it spreads like wildfire, etc., etc. But when you get on stage, you've got to sustain for 20 minutes at least. And that isn't the same. Then you've really got to know what you're doing. I remember when I started out, I can think I won't name them, but I know some people around. And I'd see them and they were sort of all right, you know, because they were just starting out. They had some talent, you know. And then for whatever reason I didn't see them for a year or two because you know circuits like that you don't see it and then all of a sudden you're on the same bill with them again and whoa they 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 had part well, I, I, my phrase for it was they'd gone round their corner they were doing the same thing but they were immensely better 
because they just kept doing it, they'd cut out the jokes which didn't get a laugh, or they'd rephrased it, because sometimes, literally, the order in which you say words will make the difference between getting a laugh and not getting a laugh. And they honed it, and they knew what they were doing, and, you know, you just got better and better and better. And that's what the circuit is for. You you start off, you do your 10-minute spots, and you build up, and so forth and so on. If you go direct from a five-minute spot on YouTube to having to, I don't know, let's say, play live with the Apollo, it ain't going to work. Unless, I mean, there's always going to be the exception, some brilliant person. But mostly, it doesn't work. You've got to build it up. I mean, in the old days, and I mean, you know, 50, 60 years ago, you didn't see young comedians at all because it took time to go around the halls, build things up and get your act together and gradually develop your timing and everything. And so virtually all comedians were, you know, 35 years old plus. <coughs> and... um Okay, we make maybe we don't need that anymore. But to go from a two-minute spot on YouTube to having your own TV show, no, doesn't work. What do you feel is the adverse effect of people doing things that they're not ready for, for like comedy or performing arts as a whole? Well, yeah. I mean, look, the whole. I mean, music's the same. They want you, if I can just talk about music for a sec, they want sure. you to be, at, they, they want to hire, um, book people who are very young. Let's say, I'll just use a number, under 25 years old. They want a singer at 25 years old to have all the skills and ability of somebody who's 45, but be 20 years old. Now, every now and then, somebody comes along who can fulfill that, like the Beatles, uh, the beginning of ABBA. You know, every now and then, there's somebody. But most of the ones they they find, they're 20 years old, they haven't got there yet, and it'll take them years. But they never, what they never do is they never say... Oh, here's somebody who's been doing it for 20 years. Jesus, they're really good, aren't they? Why don't we sign them? Because they're so obsessed with how young you are instead of being obsessed with how good you are. So that's the problem with not the people who are performing, because there are lots of people of all ages with talent, but that's the problem with the decision makers. Because... For a start, they assume that young people will only like watching other young people. Well, it's not nonsense. Like I said, when I was 12, I was obsessed with the goons, who were definitely not young people, even then. And I know, and I'm ancient. I am one of some of my best audiences are students who are, what, 50, 60 years younger than me. It's it's not true, but that's what the decision makers believe, like the gospel. They just think you have to be young. All they want to know, how how young are you? Oh, and do you feel... Once you're, you know, once you're known, you can carry on until you 
and 95. But to get your break, you've got to do it when you're young or you don't get anywhere. Do you feel they treat you a bit like a McDonald's product? They they see you as like, what can they put on package on toys and like like chocolate bars and stuff like that? I suppose so, yeah. I mean, they they are hoping that, you know, the next product will be the next Beatles or the next whichever, let's, let's say, uh, Billy Connolly, uh, use him as an example, the hope that you're going to be there for the next 40-odd years. But there's very few people who get to that level at a young age. It takes them 10 years to get into it. So if I were in the position of being a decision maker, I would tend to look for people who'd been performing regularly for at least a decade and look and look there for the talent. Mm-hmm. I mean, I started <laughs> in comedy after 10 years of doing folk clubs where I said, I think that's where comedy, this modern comedy started. And I was one of them when I met people last. But it was a mixture. I did straight songs and then there'd be a silly song, maybe a Beatles song with wrong lyrics or whatever it was. Um, and I met one evening at a jazz club, which I still frequent, called the 606. I met a couple of people called Peter Richardson and Nigel Dana in 1981, and they told me about this new comedy and the rules basically were no mother-in-law jokes, no racial stereotypes, but you can use four-letter words. So that they seemed to be the rules at the time. And, and I said, oh, I don't, you know, I don't do that sort of joke, thinking of, you know, TV shows of the comedians. Oh, please come along. Believe it or not, there were no comedians. I'm talking 1980-81. So I took part in something called the comic strip. And it was Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson and, um, you know, Francis Bond. I'm seeing Dawn next week. Um, and all those people. We had an audience of six because nobody's heard of anybody. Nobody believes me, but I went down best. Why? Because I'd been doing it for 12 years. And I knew about timing and, uh, you know, you know what I mean? So that's how I started in comedy clubs. But they were all very original and very different, and nobody had done what they were doing. Actually, it was very little stand-up in that show. It was mostly sketches. And the only real stand-up, I suppose, was Alexi Sale. Um, so, but it was a, a really radical change from what had been going on before, but they were rough around the edges, l- very funny ideas, but it wasn't, to me, look, thinking back, it wasn't quite there yet because they hadn't done it long enough and they all became wonderful. Um, but that's the sort of thing, you know, it's probably time for that sort of thing again, somebody to come along with something that nobody's seen for decades or something completely wonderful and new that is not like... And to me, the answer might be variety shows because when's the last time you saw a comedy Dragula? When's the last time you saw a comedy magician? You know, it's, it sort of hasn't been seen. 
I did a, a, a small variety show about 10 years ago, and youngsters would come along and go, wow, what's this? We've never seen this before. Hmm. You know, it wasn't tired, old-fashioned 1970s variety. This was variety for the 21st century, and it was fantastic. And when maybe somebody who has, has the decision-making hat on thinks, oh, well, man, we haven't done that for about 30 years. Why don't we try that? Maybe that will be the the new comedy. I don't know. Slapstick hasn't been seen for I don't know how long. There is... Um, so, with regards to like the variety circuit, there is. I'll send you a few links and I'll show you a few things like on email. But there, there is, mm. there is some sort of thing that does seem to be developing to a degree, and it is sort of being done in Edinburgh. Like, of course, you heard like the Malcolm Hardy. There's uh, comedians doing all sort like clowning people, like someone who Malcolm you said Hardy wasn't, wasn't writing. But no, but the people that are winning the awards for it. A, a, oh, oh, is there a Malcolm Hardy award? Is there? Okay. And there's there's some unique acts that are coming up, like this uh, comedy thing called Stamp Town, where they produce clowny, audience based. It's it's not just straight stand up comedy shows, and they tr- tour Good. across the are globe. Are on TV though? No, there's a lot of there's little that, things that are emerging problem. that aren't on TV, so but what, it, it takes somebody in a position of authority to say, oh, let's book them, let's do that, and let's form a variety show. I don't know if we want to call it variety, because that seems to be the kiss of death, to use that word. The two things which, it's very dodgy to use, they're both letter V words. They don't want variety, and they don't want you to be versatile. They want you to do one thing. As soon as you do two things, that, that confuses their poor little brains. They can't handle that. You can do more than one thing. Mm. Um, yeah, that's what they want you to do all the time. The, and if you think back to the great days of, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra could tap dance. He could act. Bing Crosby too. They could all do more than one thing. And uh, nowadays that's frowned upon. They want you to do one thing. That's all. Mm. Otherwise, oh no, we don't want to confuse people. Um, I mean, the arch example is Bruce Forsyth, who seemed to be able to do anything. Oh, he's incredible, isn't he? He was. Well, that was. He's a variety act. Was he a comedian? The archetypal variety act. He could sing, dance, play the piano, be funny, whatever it was, he could do it. That's a proper variety act. Was he ever a stand up comedian? Bruce oh, Wilson. I mean, uh, presenting Sunday Night Under Palladium, yes, he was. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, he'd, he'd do 10 minutes at the beginning of a show, and there'd be, I mean, he didn't write it. That's the other difference, of course. These days, you're expected to write all your own material. Of course, as soon as you get famous, that's not possible. You just can't write quickly enough yeah. to replace all the stuff that you used up on TV last week. I mean, when you are just doing the circuit, you can use the same act for about four years without changing a word because you won't see the same table twice. <laughs> yes. Um, whereas if you're on TV, boom, it's gone. You need more material. And so you need writers to write for you, understand your style, and maybe you write with them, you know. But um, 
it's it eats up material TV. Mm-hmm. Um, but and then again, again, that's why I'm lucky with music. It's very strange. If I were to tell a joke, and uh, I keep using that joke from you know six months, people then would turn up and say they call out, heard it, heard it before, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you do a comedy song, people turn up and go, oh, you didn't do that song. I brought my auntie along to hear you sing that song and you didn't do it. So uh, if you do a comedy song, then it actually has a much longer shelf life than if you do stand-up. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe it's like like an object. It's uh, It's a bit like, you know, do you remember Bob Newhart, the American comedian? Oh, you're gonna, you're gonna. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I'm very sorry. Uh, I don't. You don't know Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart. Well, he did a very famous sketch called The Driving Instructor. I think There's I remember somebody that. talking to some woman who obviously can't drive. You only hear the driving instructor talk, and it's absolutely hilarious. But it, and it'll be on YouTube, and. When you hear it, it's like a sort of, it's not a song, but it's a, a, it's a routine. And people would go along to hear Bob Newhart and say, would you do the driving instructor? There's another one with a, a gentleman, I can never remember his uh, name, called, I think I can, Gerard Hoffnung, who died very young. He did a very famous speech of the Oxford Union, part of which was this routine about a bricklayer who's loading up bricks and gets hurt because the barrel gives way. It's a, it's a long, wonderful comedy routine. And people would ask for that routine. So the routine is like a song. It's like a set story, if you will. And people want to hear that again because it becomes a classic. Individual little one-line jokes people get fed up with those. But if you can create a routine, which is, in a sense, like a non-musical song, people want to come and hear you do that routine again. So it's, I think that's the difference. You've got to have a, a certain sort of, a certain story of a certain length, which has got a beginning, middle, and end. You've got a comedy song, something like that, and and then people will come for years and want you to do it. Just like, you know, if people went to see Paul McCartney and he didn't do Yesterday, they'd be disappointed because they'd come particularly to hear him sing that song. Hmm. It's like that. But if you keep using the same sort of general set with the same sort of jokes, then they'll say, oh, no, I heard that. I know what's coming. I know the punchline. It's one joke with one punchline, and I know what the joke is, so it's no longer entertaining. Whereas if you have a routine, somehow that's different. I don't know why it is, but that's the way it is. Hmm. I'll have to look into it. <laughs> it's strange, isn't it? Um... Yeah, well, when, you, when, you, when you're offline, look look up the driving instructor and then look up the bricklayer. They're both on YouTube and they're just... Another one is... Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, oh, now, what is his name? He must be in his 90s now. 
um, <clears throat> the one <clears throat> the one who did History of the World Part Two, American comedian, uh, and he did a, a, a series of interviews called the One Thousand Year Old Man, and that again is a routine. Oh, and you to be a thousand year old Jewish man. It's very funny. And you mark. And he's answering questions about being that age. And again, people could go back and say, could you do the thousand-year-old man routine? It's like a sort of chunk. It takes about five, ten minutes. And it's it's the comedy equivalent of having a hit song, I suppose. Mm. Um, you just want to hear it. I mean, I could sit and listen to the thousand-year-old man right now. I could go online and I'd find it just, just as entertaining as I did the first time I saw it. Or heard it. It's strange that I don't know why it is, but individual jokes. Yeah, I've heard it. Yeah, move on. Have you got anything new? But routines or songs, I want to hear it again. I, I get that too. So I'm a big fan of Only Fools and Horses and some of these uh, comedy sketches, like My Family. I. I I remember some of these bits, but sometimes I go back and watch the my favourite bits of it. So, um, you yeah, know, I've never been. Uh, I mean, I quite like Only Fools and Horses, but I'm, I seem to be. I mean, I quite like it, but it's not my favourite sitcoms. Uh, my favourite ones are um, Porridge. Yeah, and I like. Um, Yes, Prime Minister, a lot, and because and because it's so utterly silly, I can rewatch Allo Allo. I dislike its silliness, um, but uh, porridge is wonderful. I mean, it's there's not there's not a weak link in the whole of that series. All the actors are so right in their depiction of their characters that you find it difficult to believe that those people weren't like that in real life. Mm. That's proper comedy acting, that is. And the script is wonderful. And they tried to do a modern porridge recently. Doesn't work. <laughs> Has to be those people because you can't recreate it. Mm. Um, the same thing they did a a new yes prime minister see that's the sort of thing you get with with the sort of people who make decisions these days they say, oh that was a hit 30 years ago let's do it again no, they don't get it it worked because it was the time it was those people who were brilliant at what they did you can't recreate that sort of thing it's like <clears throat> like Oasis are not the new Beatles <laughs> they may want to be but they're not but there you go. So, I mean, they do. They did copy the hairstyle quite a lot. I will say that. Oh, they, well, they copied a lot of things. <laughs> that's just not the same thing. And that, that's... Uh, the Beatles were the Beatles because that was who they were. Mm. Um, they weren't trying to copy anybody apart from you know everybody's influenced by somebody. <clears throat> But we, I'm not, you know, when I sing a Duke Ellington song, I'm not trying to be Ella Fitzgerald or 
Peggy Lee or Bing Crosby, but they influence me, obviously. Yeah. But I'm, I want to be me. And hopefully everybody who in comedy or whatever should say, okay, yes. I mean, like a good example is Monty Python. They were heavily influenced by the Goon Show, but they didn't become the Goon Show. No. But it was, that was their influence. <clears throat> yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you've got to take bits and pieces from other people, but you've got to melt a bit like mixed yeah, martial arts. Your own, <laughs> I mean, my influences in terms of comedy were my father, somebody we haven't mentioned at all who's now in his 90s, who was wonderfully funny music uh, comedy songs, and that's called Tom Lehrer. You know Tom Lehrer? Yes, uh, he. you sent me a video of him and you said he's a big hero of yours. And I noticed that he he, he likes to tackle a lot of issues, but he, he does it in a very charming way. It's, I mean, it's, he, he does what I can't do. <coughs> he can be funny about politics. And he was saying things, I mean, who was talking about pollution in 1965? Well, he was. Everybody talks about it now. But he was doing it 50 years ago. Hmm. And one of his songs, he talked about uh, being watched by the FBI. This is in the 50s when, you know, it was all reds under the bed and, you know, it's right wing. Well, things seem to be returning that way, don't they? Um, but he was talking about that then and he could he could do it and be funny. And yet... With, and yet, with a, with a very much a, a, a sort of, how can I put it, a dagger coming out in the middle of the, of the lyric, uh, and yet it was still funny. That's a special talent. I haven't got it, but I, I was influenced by it, um, and so I make fun of other things. Some of my songs, things that I don't like, such as country music, or whatever. So, following on from that, and this may irk you a bit, but what do you make of uh, Tupac and uh, Biggie Smalls? Because they, they, one thing that people in the 90s liked about them is they talked about issues that were... Um, so I couldn't hear who you said it was. What do you make of Tupac and Biggie Smalls? Because they did, they did tackle a lot of issues that were going on during that time as well. I don't think I know them at all. They're hip-hop artists in the 90s. Oh, well, hip-hop, oh, well, there you go. I, can't, I have no time for hip-hop at all. <laughs> the, thing, the thing is, it's supposed to be music. If you're not singing, it's not music. Ah. It's, it's sort of performance poetry. It's not music. <laughs> if you're not going, la da 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 if you're talking, then it isn't music. It's as simple as that. It might be fascinating poetry, I don't know. But music, it isn't. <laughs> so if you if you were in a bar right now, I mean, we do have an interesting story of where you went in, first time in New York, you went to a jazz bar, didn't you? But imagine if that was a hip-hop bar. What would you do then? If oh, you... well, I would have walked out again. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't a jazz bar anyway, it was a oh. bar. It was very funny, actually. It's in 1968. I was 21 years old. My first time in New York. I live in Labrador Grove, where half 
the population are black. So I'm used to black people around me. It's no big deal. Who cares? Yeah. Um, but New York was different because there's a big, it's, it's a very racialist society, particularly yeah. then. They, they'd only just passed the, the laws stopping people from banning black people from getting on buses and going <laughs> to schools, remember? Just, so I'm up in Harlem because I'd read my jazz books. That's where Duke Ellington and Fats Waller hung out. So the first thing I do is I take the A train, as the song says. I'm walking around. It's a Saturday night. It was about 90 degrees Fahrenheit and humid and horrible. <laughs> and I um, was walking around, and I just got hot, and I saw it was a sort of walk-down bar, that three steps below pavement level. And I walked in, and the room was full of black men, and there's me. 21-year-old British guy wearing a bowler hat. <laughs> and as I walked in, it was like one of those Western films. The whole place went silent. You could hear my footsteps going across the floor. And I said, oh, good evening. Could I have a live and line, please? <laughs> and so he goes, what? So good. What? I have no idea. We sell beer. So, oh, all right, then. I have a beer, please. And I turned around. And all these guys were staring at me. Luckily for me, I mean, some of them were huge, well over six foot, a lot of them. <laughs> luckily for me, these were all guys in their 50s and 60s, so they weren't violent at all, you know. I don't see any of them. All I see is in the corner is a wonderful 1920s Rococo-styled upright New York piano. Uh. So I said, oh, could I play the piano? And the guy said, in a sort of tone which said, well, he's going to die soon, so let's give him his last wish. <laughs> um, he said, if you want to play the piano, play the piano. So I went out and started playing the piano. The style I play in is called Harlem Stride. <laughs> 20s, 30s, yeah? Yep. In other words, it's, I mean, I can't match them in terms of ability, but it's the style of Fats Waller, Duke Ellington, and all those people. This is in the 60s, and I'm surrounded by men who are in their 50s and 60s. This is the music of their youth that I'm playing <laughs> on the piano. <laughs> so all of a sudden, room, the room lights up. Two of them were tap dancers. We had a fantastic evening. And I was there till 3 a.m. <laughs> you know, rocking and rhythm? Yeah, sure, I'll play that. Uh, Hey, Henry, come on, show us more how you can dance. <laughs> and it was like that till 3 a.m. Uh. <laughs> Were you scared? <laughs> no, that was all. I must say, I, I come from Lubbock Grove. Half the population here is black. It, it, it didn't dawn on me. When we left, four of them, and she said, where are you going now? So, I mean, I don't know if they said this, but it's like, where are you going now, white boy? And I said, well, I'm staying down in a sort of Times Square in a hotel. How are you going to get down there? So I'll tell you. I said, no, 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 we're going to take you to the bus, see? So we're walking down the street, very friendly. There are these four guys, like Californian redwoods, all around me. They were about seven foot tall, these guys. <laughs> and... Uh, we, they walked me to the bus and we're having a lovely conversation and it's all great, you know. <clears throat> and they wait with me for the bus. The bus arrives, I get on. 
And one of them said to me, said, we like you. He says, don't come back. He says, you made it this time. You might not make it next time. You hear what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's, that was my first experience of New York. I mean, it's like a scene from a film. But it actually happened. What did you say when they said that? I said, I, well, I didn't say anything, but, you know, on the bus, um, I was you know, thinking about what they're saying. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. I've learned something from that. Uh, incidentally, there's a guy sitting opposite me. We got down to near Times Square, which is a sort of where it sort of, at the time, it was like their version of Soho. The guy in front of me, who looked like an ordinary bloke, by the time we were getting down there, he's putting makeup on and he's putting on his trans costume and he was becoming a woman, you know. <laughs> she was all on the bus going back there. So, and I was wearing a three-piece check suit and a bowler hat and spats. It's yeah. That, when I heard this story about from another comic, and it was brilliant to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Um. Yes. It's um. It wasn't a gig. I was just my first day in New York. I mean, I, I had a wonderful. Uh, my best time in New York was the next eight years later when I knew somebody who knew the whole of the Duke Ellington family, and I got to meet all these wonderful, sort of. Well, they were heroes of mine from the 1930s, great jazz musicians whom I had on 78s. And there they were in person. You know, I got to know some of them. <laughs> I used to go to their home and everything. They're really nice guys. But they, by that time, they were in their 70s and 80s. And by that time, I was uh, late 20s or something. And I got to meet Milt Hinton, the great bass player, Um uh, a saxophone player who was in Duke Ellington's orchestra. I got to know Duke Ellington's sister. I mean, it was like an amazing time. That was in the mid-70s. Huh? Mm. And remember, I was still a schoolmaster at the time. I didn't, I didn't uh, leave my day job until I was asked to do the tour opening for Paul McCartney and Wings in 1979. And remember, there wasn't the comedy scene hadn't started yet then. It started really in the early eighties. How, how did you manage to be what's it called the like perform with wings and like become like? And yeah, what is Paul McCartney well, like? <laughs> it's a long process. Um, first of all, I'd been signed to the same company as the Beatles in the sixties. Uh, Dick James was their publisher, and he had the Beatles, then me, then somebody called Reg Dwight. You may have heard of. Okay. But he changed his name to Elton John. Oh! And the reason Elton John has the career, not me, is because, stupidly, I wanted to finish my degree in philosophy. Oh! So I wasn't around when Dick formed his record company, and um, so he plugged his other person who was Reg Dwight. By the time I came back, it was too late. Um, so I have a degree in philosophy, which hasn't really done anything, kept me into pointless arguments with people who don't understand what I'm saying. Um, 
but that's how I then in the in the 70s I had a wonderful manager called uh, John Jones standing along with us and when I used to do folk clubs he did, he had the biggest folk club in Putney and he gradually became sort of a friend and manager I'm not quite sure which was most true of those two and I started doing support tours and people like Ralph McTell, who's still my friend. You know Ralph McTell? Ralph McTell. He wrote a famous song called The Streets of London. Let me have Number a one hit at the time. A uh, folk rock band called Fairport Convention. So I was going around opening for them, doing festivals, doing folk clubs all over the country. And then, you know, in school holidays and things like that. And then... Uh, through another friend of mine, I got to go on a tour opening for Van Morrison in the middle of 79. And while on one of the tours with uh, Fairport, I met the guy who was the drummer with Wings. He's still my friend today, Steve Holly. And he came around here and we played records of Louis Jordan and things. And then he saw me performing at a big folk festival and saw me deal with 35,000 people in an awkward Oof. moment. I won't bore you with the details, but I got through it and they still like me sort of thing. And then that Christmas, it was the last Wings tour, as it turned out to be ever, uh, they were, they want, didn't want the normal, oh, let's have a young band opening for us. They wanted something a bit different and they had all sorts of discussions about which sort of novelty thing they should have, and none of them really held water. And then Steve said, I know somebody could do it. And apparently Paul said, was the first time anybody's shown any sort of enthusiasm for anyone. Let's try him then, you know. So that's how I got it. Oh. And, and I gave up being a deputy head overnight. I was so pleased to get out of teaching. And so with... I mean, you also mentioned in a lot of podcasts that you've now, as you've gotten older, you've grown more in love with the music. Well, I always was. See, I always saw the comedy. <clears throat> I always saw myself as a singer and a songwriter and somewhat of a musician. The comedy, as far as I was concerned, it was like a piece of cheese at a wine tasting. You go there... <laughs> for the wine but the cheese is very important because it refreshes the palate and that's the way I saw comedy I mean if you watch an old TV show with Bing Crosby there's lots of comedy if you watch the Rat Pack with Frank Sinatra there's lots of comedy in between the songs you know people haven't gone there for the comedy yeah. but it entertains in between the songs and that's what I always regarded my comedy as being. And that's what I'm sort of returning to. So I sold out Ronnie Scott's recently, which is the premier jazz club in London. But I did a couple of funny songs in the middle. They're not the sort of comedy that I do at a comedy club. Okay. But it works in it with a jazz audience. Hmm. Um, because they have to know the original song first, so I sing the song straight first. The song called It's Quarter to Three, No One in the Place Except You and Me, Give Me One for My Baby, One More for the Road, you know that song? 
I'm sorry, I don't again. No, you're too young. Right, OK, <laughs> well, it's a very famous song. Frank Sinatra made it famous. And I do it, in fact, I, I, I lay on the emotion. I have fun. I have fun with the local guard I go up to him and I say, I can get in, I can get onto this train without paying anything and there's nothing you can do to stop me. <laughs> and he says, oh, really? I'd like to see you try. So I said, well, watch me. This is called a freedom pass. <laughs> <laughs> and w w what's his face after you say that? Yeah, when he laughs, you know. <laughs> Well, now, there's only a couple of questions that I'd like to ask now because I've okay. heard a couple of more stories that of your time in adventuring in Malaysia. I heard this point where he was like, you were dressed in a suit, and he says, um, "What's it called? Are you sure you don't want to just wear a top or something because it's too hot?" And you said, "I'm well ventilated." And um, I hit. There was another thing that you mentioned that in Germany. The variety act seems to be going quite strong. Is that right? Um, well, I haven't been in Germany for a while, but certainly, yeah. I mean, there there are theatres called Variété. Yeah, I mean, I did. It was interesting. About twenty years ago, now time passes. I was booked by somebody to do a tour. I see. What I do is, they have different forms of comedy in Germany. Uh, they have sort of cheesy slapstick and stuff we wouldn't find funny because it's sort of old-fashioned and it just doesn't work. But they also have some very sophisticated political comedy, which is uh, which is one form, and that's called cabaret. It doesn't mean cabaret. It means political comedy. And then there's something in between, which is called Kleinkunst, literally little art. And what that is, it's comedy, but with another skill, usually music, but it could be magic, it could be anything, yeah? And <clears throat> because they assume that England must have the same thing, they assume that I'm just a British Kleinkunst artist. <laughs> and since so many Germans speak English, I can actually tour Germany, at least West Germany anyway, where they learn English, and I can do my work, my show, and they think it's Kleinkunst. So I was booked for this show called Slapstick, which I don't know where they got the phrase from, but there was nothing slapstick in the show. It was a sort of three-man variety show. Me, a friend of mine called Kai Eichermann, whose act was he sort of becomes a sort of robot, so I suppose it's sort of slapstick, but it, it's certainly physical comedy. He becomes a robot and does various silly things. I mean, it's not slapstick in the in the sense that he's hurt and he falls over and hurts himself. It's not that sort of slapstick, but it's visual. Yeah, he doesn't talk at all. <clears throat> and then there was a third act, and he. Um, it was this was at the time when, of course, uh, Germany had only just been reunited. And he played the part of an East German who thought he was really cool, but in fact he was really incredibly not cool. And that's where the comedy came from in his act. Of course, he was speaking German. So we were a whole variety of different acts. And so it was a variety show, but also there was a 
theater in Berlin called the Varieté, and you saw all sorts of things in the same show. Comedy, a uh, girl halfway up the ceiling doing somersaults, hanging onto a rope, almost like a circus act. Um, <clears throat> all sorts of things. And the variety was certainly, when I last performed in Germany, was definitely still alive. Here, no. As to the Malaya thing, I always wear three-piece suit and spats. I don't have any other clothes. I don't feel right not wearing spats. I just doesn't feel right. Um, in hot countries, wearing a lot of clothes is actually okay. If you look at the way Arabs dress, they also cover themselves up. <clears throat> if you've got layers, it actually protects you from the heat. Because, you know, you've got the air between the various layers. The trouble with Malaysia is it's not just hot, it's humid. Hmm. And so what I would do, particularly, I remember when Thailand once, no, it wasn't, it was Singapore. I had to go somewhere along a, a large, a long street, which was a main street, and it was full of departmental stores. And all the departmental stores were air conditioned. So my method of walking along the street was to go from one end of, departmental shop to the other of it not buying anything but just enjoying the air conditioning then I go out cross the road into the heat and then go into the next one and so I kept cool and that was my method of progressing where I needed to go yeah fair enough it's it's but it, it what would you make of um, performing in like different countries as opposed to the UK and how is the comedy set up and what has your experience been like because well i i have done i have well till two years ago and the dreaded brexit um not to mention lockdown um i performed in australia where it's just like being at home i mean obviously you can't you have to cut out any local references. I mean, not that I talk about football, but if were I to talk about football, it's no good me talking about Queen's Park Rangers because they won't know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, so you cut out any any local references and try and say something more generic. Uh, and that's even more so when I'm working in Germany, I have to speak rather as I'm doing now, which sounds as if I'm on Mogadom, but you have to speak slowly so that they can understand you. <laughs> if I were to speak at my normal speed, they they wouldn't hear a word I was saying. So you think you sound as if you're on drugs, but actual fact, from their point of view, it's a much more effective thing. So you, again, you try and keep your comedy generic. So I talk about music, which I don't like, um, sex, which is universal, subjects like that, which anybody will understand. And my comedy is as much about me being funny as the actual material that I'm using. Just, you know, I mentioned Tommy Cooper before. When he came on stage, people would laugh. And he hadn't done anything. He hadn't said anything. There's some strange thing that 
you've got it, you, people, you can make them laugh without actually just by expression on your, on your face or your attitude or the position of your body or whatever it is, I don't know. <clears throat> but if you can do that, it makes everything you say funny, even though it's not particularly brilliant. And apparently I've got some of that skill. Um, so I can work in all those places. The only places I have problem is actually the USA because they don't understand irony. <laughs> you know, I'm always introduced as musical genius and sex symbol. <laughs> We've... And I did a gig once in Bermuda where most of the people were off. Oh, God, they were from New Jersey, which is like the Essex of the USA. They'd come <laughs> on these cruise ships, and they were, that's who these people were, and they weren't young either. <clears throat> so there were people... Then, I mean, I was much younger. They would have been in their 60s and 70s. And I did my act, you see. And as I was sitting near the entrance as people were leaving, and I suddenly said to his wife, I don't know why he thought he was so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Completely missing the point of the comedy. But, um, you know, you, you get that occasionally. <laughs> You mentioned some of the things like with the UK comedy scene, and yeah. but in America comedy scene, I feel that when I went over there, there is no ifs or buts or whatever. It is complete capitalist. Everything is every man in some respects every man for themselves. Like with um, the comedy, it's so much pay to play. It's and it's very. Is a lot of what I saw yeah, I, I is very that. fixed. Um, the other thing is this. I don't know whether you noticed this, but I say to quite a few Americans, they're not all like this, but a large number of them. They seem, seem to realize that the thing at the end of the wire in their hand is called a microphone, <laughs> and it makes you sound louder. <laughs> and they shout into it, and they hector the order. Ah, that's their style. <laughs> you watch American comedians. I mean, not not the best ones, but a lot of them. It's loud. Now, whether this is because people aren't listening and they've got to talk over them, I don't know. But when I was, I did the comedy store once, and the first thing I did was to be really quiet, <laughs> and it the whole room went quiet. And I went, you know, you know, my, in fact, that's where I in, invented my opening line now, because I'm introduced as musical genius and sex symbol. And I remember sitting down on the stool and um, not saying anything, just sort of looking from side to side. And they're thinking, so what's this Englishman going to do? You could see that, you know. And I just leant forwards and I said, hello, ladies. You got a huge laugh because it's so ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not a sex symbol, and I know it, and they know it, but it's I've just been announced as one. And then it's a double double cross because I then go, "Hello, ladies," as if I am one. <laughs> um, and that's become my opening line ever since. I always tell new comedians one of the first things they need to do is to think of a really good opening line because it tells people who you are for the next 10, 20 minutes. And the worst thing, uh, uh, as soon as I hear somebody say, 
hi, how are you doing tonight? <laughs> that tells me that the guy's got no originality and I won't hear anything for the next 20 minutes, and usually I'm right. Um, the one I told you before about Michael Redmond and his first joke, wonderful. Um, there's a friend of mine, I'm trying to think of what his name is, um, <laughs> it's terrible when you can't think of your friend's name. But the first time I saw him, he's got this wonderful, quiet way of talking. And I saw him at a comedy club right at the beginning of his career, back in the 80s. And he said, very quietly, he said, I want you to know before I start that if you want to heckle me, I don't have any clever put-down lines. I do have a very large knife. <laughs> of I felt about laughing. And it's, an, I mean, that's an original way to start a set. And already, already I wanted to hear what else he had to say to me. Mm. And I think the opening line, you've got to have something really good. Never say, how are you doing tonight? Or... You know, I don't know what other, you know, the cliche opening lines. Never say that. Mm. <clears throat> because all it does is reinforce the idea, oh, yeah, we're going to get 10 minutes of boredom. Is it needy, do you feel, and please like me sort of attitude when someone does that? Sorry, I didn't hear that for some reason. Can you repeat that again? Would you say that it's a bit needy? And it's a bit on the stage of please like me on stage rather than just being themselves. Um, well, I mean, when you're starting out, you're nervous. I mean, you haven't done it very long. If you've only ever done 10 gigs and two of them, and in two of them you died, <laughs> which is possible because you're not yeah, there yeah, yet. You yeah, know? yeah, that's true, definitely. So, yeah, you are going to be nervous, um, and it takes, you know, it takes courage. You've got to sort of, um, you know, you've got to find a way of, I mean, <clears throat> even if you're nervous, you've got to pretend you're not, because otherwise, you know, the audience will think, oh, he's, he's obviously not going to be very good. You've got to look, and you get this after a while, you just got to, You've just got to look like, yeah, hello, here I am again. I belong here. Yes, relax. You're going to have a great time. Just in your presence, the way you, you know, when I come on stage, I don't look nervous anymore because I've done 85,000 gigs. And yes, mm. every now and then, the audience doesn't like what I do and I'm going to die. Anybody who says they haven't died on stage is a liar. <laughs> I mean, hopefully, it doesn't happen to me very often, mainly because I uh, avoid sort of gigs. I mean, I'm absolutely no good with drunken stag nights because my material is wrong for them. Number two, I need women in the audience. And B, I need C, I need somebody with, where, their, where their brain is working. <laughs> and so I avoid those gigs. You know, your, your typical jonglers, sort of thing <clears throat> and as long as you know who you're performing to but when you start out you don't know you just 
you get, you know, you've got a gig and maybe it's only 10 minutes. And because uh, that didn't really happen when I was starting out because there weren't, there were so few comedy clubs anyway. There, it, you know, you didn't build up from 10 minutes. What I did, I took my two hour folk club set took out the comedy bits, put it together, and there was my 20 minutes. <laughs> so it was sort of different. I never had that situation of gradually building things up. I'd been performing for 12 years before I did my first comedy gig. So I was always sort of confident on stage because I'd done it for so long. I, I first went on stage singing when I was five or six. So being on stage was never you know, sort of something that worried me. I never had stage fright. Sometimes you look at, you know, the club you've got to go on to and you think, oh, God, this is going to be a disaster. And you just know it's not going to work just from the type of people in the audience. Oh. But you just grit your teeth and carry on with it. <laughs> but I never had that sort of feeling that, oh, uh, will they like me? Will I, I, I never had that. If you're just starting out, and I want to be a comedian, and I didn't, well, I've never done this before. The first few gigs are going to be a, a, a giant learning curve, and hopefully, you know, you've written enough funny stuff that will get you through it. But you know, hmm. I mean, there's some comedians where, where the thing is obvious. You get the racial minorities who talk about being black or who talk about being French or who talk about being Welsh or whatever their group of Irish or whatever it is that they come from, they can use that as the basis for their humour. Um, but whatever it is, you've got to make it funny. And if you don't, you're going to die. <laughs> Unless you've got this ability just to be funny by standing there, as some people have. What's what's one situation you've seen of that that isn't Tommy Cooper from an act where oh no you've mentioned Jeff Innocent you mentioned uh, Ian Stone but have you seen another act where they've said virtually nothing and you're like my God well, what's Michael this? Redmond was the first one he was just wonderful I still I think he ought to be a much bigger name than he really is um, another one who's got wonderful presence, in, uh, uh, sort of a character of her own. She just stands there, and that's Hattie Hayridge, another very underestimated comedian. She's got lovely lines, but she's she sort of stands there a bit like a sort of, you know, she's like a sort of washed-out Essex girl. She stands, you know what I mean? What's her name? Harvey? And then these wonderful lines come out of her. Harvey Hayridge. Hattie. Hattie Hayridge. Hattie Hayridge. Okay. You've never seen her. She also played the uh, robot in that space series. No. Can't you see her one. on screen. It's not that one, is it? Hitchhiker's Guide yeah, to the Gal Galaxy. What's the name of the series? I can't bring it to mind. Is it Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? No. No, the one with the Robot and the and the hologram and uh, Red Dwarf. I don't know. <laughs> I don't You're Red Dwarf, yeah. Oh, you know there's a screen with a with a robot on it. 
Oh, that, okay. <laughs> uh, she was one of those. Hattie Hayridge. Oh. I still remember her, the first joke she ever told. She was, again, in Jonglers in the 80s, and she came on. She said, I hate it when people, you go to a restaurant, people say to you, how many of you are there? So I always say, there are many of us. Some of us are here already, but we all look like you, Earthling. <laughs> and that's not your average joke, is it? <laughs> no. And she's just wonderful. <clears throat> Another guy who's like that is a guy from Sweden called Henrik. And he also has a weird line in jokes. One of my favorites is he says he went to dance with my girlfriend's house and and I, I could, they have very thin walls and I could hear somebody having sex and I didn't want her parents to think it was, we were doing anything. So I called up, Mr. and Mrs. Anderson, it isn't us. And they called back, we know it isn't you idiot, it's us. <laughs> <laughs> and again, you don't hear that coming. You don't hear that where that joke is going from. And what's his name again? And okay. hmm? that's that's incredible. <laughs> it's, it's like, they're lovely. People come up with these lovely ideas that I would never have thought of in a hundred years. Um, I mean, I like uh, Milton joke about. I'm sure you've heard him do this. He said on the way here the other day. I. As I saw on the pavement, a little dead baby ghost. A little dead baby ghost. Or it could have been a handkerchief. See, now, that's original. You're not going to get that from every Tom, Dick and Harry stand-up, are you? No. And he's, he's wonderful to be honest. We were doing a charity show once, and... Uh, Joe Brand was on in the first half, and she was very good, and she was all about hating children and things. And one of the things she said, that there was a seven-year-old girl getting on her tits, so she put her in a catapult and fired her off. She was walking through the West End, and she was annoying her, right? She had this image of her firing a seven-year-old girl in a giant catapult, yeah. So that was all got a laugh and everything, and then actually Joe had to go off somewhere else, she had another gig. After the interval, about an hour later, Milton was on, and in the middle of his set, apropos of nothing at all, he suddenly said, funny thing happened to me the other day. I was walking down Oxford Street when a seven-year-old girl landed in front of me. <laughs> so it all went, yes, yes, yes. It's just so lovely. It was just sort of, it was delivered in such an insouciant way. It was just in a, just telling us something that happened to him, but of course it was a callback to Joe Brand's <laughs> joke in the first part. But it was done brilliantly. See, those are the moments that I remember. Um, and there are only very few comedians of that quality around, just like anything else. I mean, there are very few great singers that I want to hear. A lot of singers, but most of them are just also rants. And you try and be one of those special ones. That's if you want to stay doing it. 
and I, hopefully I must be of a certain standard because I've been doing this 45 years and I'm still getting gigs. So I must be doing something right. I know that there's nobody who does an act anything like mine, which is made because they don't want to. <laughs> but I, I, it's good being unique because then you're the only person in that particular little league. So if they want one of those, it has to be you. you know, so I think that's another thing one should do is, I mean, there's only one Milton Jones. There's nobody else who thinks like him or does what he does. Uh, and uh, again, Jeff Innocent, he's a one-off. You know, his his what he does is he tries tries to look like some sort of East End thug, and then he <laughs> doesn't talk like one at all. But he looks like one, and he uses that as his. That's where he's coming from. Um, so it's all, you know, everybody's got to find their own little personality, their own handle, if you will. And that's, as I say, part of that is having that great opening line because it tells people straight away, this is who I am for the next 20 minutes. Do you, do you know uh, Jeff Innocence? Do, do you, I, I like his, um, he's got a viral hit with his, um, what's it called? Being in a mixed race couple, I can't do certain things. Like chase her down the street. I can't what? He says because he's in a mixed race couple, there's certain things yeah. he can't do. Like chase her oh, down yes, the street. Says, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> runs after her down the street, yes. <laughs> My favourite joke of his, however, is the one he goes, <laughs> he goes, oh, where I come from, I'm a sort of geezer. Nobody wants to fight with. He says, whereas in Brighton, that's, <laughs> he leaves the rest of your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. <clears throat> um, yeah, there's always going to be, I mean, that's, you know, the, the famous uh, Michael Redmond joke that everybody used to steal, apparently. Uh, I never heard somebody else use this line, and he was not pleased. Uh, he His famous line was, people often say to me, get out of my garden. <laughs> and that was stolen by various people, but that was a Michael Redmond line. Hmm. Nobody can steal my lines because, A, the lines aren't funny of themselves. It's just the fact of me singing them which makes them funny. The, my opening song is called My Room. If you look at the lyrics of that, there's not one funny line in it anywhere. But it's the contrast between why I'm singing and who I am which makes it funny. Hmm. I mean, nobody else can do that song because of that. They'd either not be funny or they'd just look like an imitation of me. So either one doesn't work. But there they go. But my, my, as I say, my main gripes at the moment are with the lack of um, variety in, in all senses of the word on TV when it comes to comedy. It's all the same. Uh, as a, it can, it's mainly stand-up, 
some sketches and sitcoms. That's all there is in comedy, nothing else. And within the world of stand-up, again, it tends to be a lack of variety, with some notable exceptions. And I, there's, you know, there could be ten male stand-ups all in their early twenties, all wearing check shirts over jeans, and all looking and sounding the same. And I get bored. It's very, very seldom that I can listen to even a good stand-up that I can listen to them more than half an hour without beginning to look at my watch. <laughs> As opposed to somebody like Billy Connolly, you can go on for an hour and you don't even notice the time has gone. The really great comedians can do that. Mm. Like Michael McIntyre. You... Definitely not Michael McIntyre, oh. no. <laughs> he's, uh, he's... But then again, his ego is big enough that it doesn't really bother him. And he's... he has upset a lot of people on the circuit before he was well known, just by his sort of ego. Really? Oh, God. Oh, yeah. I I I won't go into details, but I, I can remember two or three, not with me involved, but other stand-ups who were really pissed off with him. This is long before he got on TV. And, I mean, his comedy bores me. It's like, all his comedy is, we do this, don't we? And we're going, yes, we do. And the joke is <laughs> that that's his comedy. We do this, don't we? Then he acts out what we do. And that's basically his act. Bish bosh, um, done. I don't find it funny. Okay. Um, somebody who is has become very famous and does earn a lot of money, but I always thought he was good. He was mainly, he always worked as a compare, and in a sense, that's what he still is doing. Um, I can't think of his name now. Northern Irish talk show host, what's his name? Wogan. No, he's not Northern Ireland. He's now. Irish. Um, huh? Um... I don't know. I think... Um... He's Northern Irish, he's gay, and he's got a talk show. Oh, Graham Norton. Graham Norton, yes. Now, I, he, he used to perform alongside, he was the compere, and he used to get 70 quid a night. And he's really good at what he does. Hmm. Um, always has been. Good, solid pro, yeah? And he's got lucky. I'm not saying other people wouldn't be just as good, but he's good. And he turn on and he, you know, delivers. And it works. I preferred him before, though. When he did his Channel 4 talk show, I thought it was better than what he's doing now. Oh, I don't know. Or maybe it's got too... I haven't seen him recently. Maybe it's got a bit sort of uh, uh, celebrity-friendly, is it? Yeah. Well, I just want to say one thing with this. Is there anything you'd like to plug out? Plug? Well, anything, any like shows you got coming up, any festivals? Well, yes, or any... I suppose so. Um, in terms of comedy, I mean, most of the shows I'm doing, uh, I'm doing one at the Albert Hall at the beginning of December. That's going to be 
at the Elgar Room, but that, again, is a, mostly a music show. And likewise, I'm doing one at the Pizza Express in Dean Street, Soho, uh, Saturday, I think Saturday, or it could be Sunday. It's a weekend um, lunchtime show just before Christmas. But again, that's chiefly music. But on my 75th birthday itself, 31st of January, I'm at the Pizza Express Hoban, and it's called Erlokin and Friends. So I don't know if they're able to come yet, but I've invited um, a couple of comedians, Jerry Sadowicz is going to be, hopefully going to be one of them. They're just consulting their diaries to see whether they are not touring or doing shows elsewhere. And so hopefully that'll be me and two or three of these people all doing five minutes each and having fun. So that should be a really good night. Pizza's mm. quite good there too, actually. As pizza, as pizza restaurants go, I think the Pizza Express is amongst the best. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I suppose I'd plug that one um, as being the most one. And the other thing is, obviously, because um, a lot of comedy clubs don't know who I am because they're young and they don't haven't seen me. So all my best thing is to plug myself and say, why not get in touch and try me out? <laughs> it's like I'm starting again. Because there's only a few of the people still running clubs that I've known for the last 40 years. Some of the clubs are run by people who've never heard of me, probably. Yeah. So um, maybe the person what I should plug is just me. I know I'm not like anybody else. I say, if you want something that's different, uh, I'm the one. You're you're like uh, what's it called, a caviar to to a fish and chip restaurant. Now, what's, this is what's... right, absolutely perfectly put. I couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> or caviar compared to cod roe. Yes, that's it. <laughs> you're the extra flavour. <laughs> yeah, it's still eggs, but it's different. <laughs> but, <laughs> there you go. Um, so so there you are. I hope said some things that nobody else has said and that, which makes it more different and interesting for your listeners yeah i i let's let I, let's see what happens i will uh would i be able to send you a copy of this before i put it out and see your thoughts on it yeah i think what well, you might go through it I, i've got a bit of an early morning cough so you might cut the coughs out <laughs> um but otherwise, fine. One more thing I'm going to say. Guys, For if you're listening back home, you've heard about Orlok and he's fantastic. Make sure you give the episode, share it with your friends, subscribe, uh, give us a review on Amazon or iTunes if you found great value in it. And I'll see you guys at the next episode. <laughs>